Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for Frontlines, tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Ephraim Smith on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. Hey, Exponential, welcome back to the Candid Conversations webinar show. Uh, my name is Peyton Jones. I'm the content director here at Exponential, and I've got sitting with me, riding shotgun in the cockpit, Myron Pierce, entrepreneurial oh, church planner and co-host with Ralph Moore of the Practical Multiplication Show. Welcome, Myron. Hey, good to be here, bro. All right, man. So, uh, yeah, it's it's super, super cool to be here with our guest, which is Dr. Drew Hart, who's a theology professor in Bible and Religion Department at Messiah College, and also the author of the book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. And uh, Dr. Hart, we want to welcome you today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, our, our topic today is winning, and this is one of the last episodes we have. We actually have a couple more, but we, we, we've been talking for weeks now on 12 core topics about diversity, and of course, you and I, Dr. Drew, have talked before about your book, but we also today want to talk about what does it look like to be winning, because obviously in America, we're losing. We're not, we're not winning the battle on diversity, either in the church or outside the church. Now, I know a lot of people have different opinions, so some might think we're winning more than others, but the purpose of today's interview is to discuss and and probably define what is winning in this, because right now uh, we're we're having voices calling out to be heard, um, and, and everything as it does in this country often defaults back to entrenched positions and people not listening to anything. And so the purpose of this podcast and webinar and show, you get a three for one on this, uh, is to actually open up the dialogue, have a very frank, very honest, very candid conversation. And today we really want to talk about what does it look like to be winning? So that's going to be my first question today, just right out the gate. Um, what does it look like to win? To win. I mean, I think that it's a really interesting question because um, I imagine that our instinctive response to what winning means and looks like um, will initially be shaped by just common sense mainstream perspectives in our society. And so um, the challenge is, is what does it mean to 
think about winning in light of Jesus Christ, in particular, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that redefines for us our evaluation of everything, including what it means to win, right? And so, I mean, you think about, I'm, I'm immediately thinking of uh, Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians, um, and you think about the first chapter and the 15th chapter, right? Uh, the first chapter, verses 18 through 31, Paul talks about, um, he came and preached nothing but Christ crucified. Um, and obviously Christ, the, the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And that was the, the one that people had put their hopes in to uh, redeem Israel, to liberate them from oppression under Rome, to, um, you know, change and, and kind of restore God's reign in that space. Um, and everyone had their hopes in the Messiah. And, and what Paul is saying is that he preached a crucified Messiah a Messiah that uh, was executed under state sanctions execution, right? Um, and yet, and he, so he, that's what he came to preach, that message, a crucified Messiah, a crucified anointed one. And then just so we don't miss it, like he goes on and explains that God's power and God's wisdom is expressed through um, this God revealed in the crucified Christ, Right. So already it's messing with our minds around even um, what, how we understand how God works in the world and what God is up to. It, it's boggled. It's already confused because God is being revealed most clearly through the crucified Christ. And then just so that we can't miss the social implications of it, he goes on and he says, look, most of y'all ain't nobodies in this world, right? You didn't come from nowhere. You're not special. You don't have advantages in this world. And yet God has chosen the weak to shame the strong. God has chosen those that are considered nothing to shame those that are considered something. And so already um, the the crucifixion of Christ already redefines um, winning, right? Um, it, it can't all anymore be based on the standards that we're accustomed to in our society. Everything has to kind of die and be reborn in some ways, including our evaluation of what it means to win. Um, <coughs> So that's a starting point. And then thinking about verse, uh, chapter 15, um, there all of a sudden you have this really beautiful chapter where Paul reflects on the significance of the, of the uh, resurrection, right? Um, and for him, everything hinges on this resurrection. Um, the, our, our future, our world, um, new creation, everything hinges on the fact that Jesus resurrected. And so you, you put those together, this death and resurrection in many ways is the starting point for us trying to figure out what does it mean to win. Now, how, how do we make sense of that in a society that has centuries of racism, right, and a racial oppression? What does that mean for us? Um, I think that certainly some might think that, you know, um, the, the folks who came over and oppressed and took this land and forcibly removed indigenous people and enslaved black people um, um, and utilized weaponized Christianity to do all that. Some might say that that was winning, right? Um, but, but I imagine that if we took Paul seriously, that, that God's activity in the world um, is being expressed not through those who consider themselves triumphant, uh, but precisely the folks who um, are in solidarity with the least, last, and lost in this world uh, and are seeking to build new community um, 
that authentically is emerging and bear witness to what God can do in the space created within Jesus Christ, right? That something special happens in that space. Um, and, and I guess if we're going to use the word winning to describe it, that would be what winning is, right? Um, breaking outside of the flow of what the inertia of what this country has been for so long and even how Christianity has been used for so long and finding Christ's presence alive and active, transforming people's lives, delivering people from suffering and struggles and God's reign breaking in right even under the nose of the old world in, in really powerful ways that often will get missed if we're not paying attention because sometimes we're looking at uh, the folks who have all the power and wealth in society and dismissing the least, last, and lost in society, those that the, in the cracks of society. And I think that, that maybe that's a starting point for us thinking about winning um, is how do we reevaluate everything in light of the birth, life, death, teachings, you know, resurrections, the, the return of Christ. So how does that um, shape our imagination all over again? I'm so glad, um, Dr. Hart, that you... You, you kind of laid out for us how we are to reconcile what it means to be Jesus followers in a country that, like you said, has historically found its roots in racism, actually. Yeah. How have you seen the church uh, mangle the witness of, of, of Jesus and um, what would you advise us to do to uh, kind of demangle? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the legacy, I mean, the, I'll try to not to spend too much time, but I mean, if we think about church history um, and think about the big scale, like sometimes we think about church, we think like, oh, but this is what my grandfather believed. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about like centuries long, right? To look back at where we came from, um, the earliest beginnings of the church, I mean, it was originated in the East. In fact, the majority of the church, it was not, Western Europe was latecomers in many ways to um, Christianity. And, and so you have this Asia Minor, uh, North Africa kind of region. You, some of the most significant theologians are African theologians, right? Um, Cyprian and Tertullian and Athanasius and Augustine, and we could go on and on and on. And so um, we see the heart of, of, of the church in the East um, being born out of this first century Palestinian brown Jew, right, living under Roman occupation. Um, and the church grows for the first 300 years, it's a minority. It doesn't have social power. It doesn't assume to have social power. It doesn't need social power to do its work. It's still growing, right, um, despite that. And, but fourth century comes, Constantine comes, gives the church all kinds of privileges and advantages in the church. Um, and we see uh, in that, um, that the church gets enticed by the power, right? They didn't have to, they didn't have to, but they got enticed by it. And so slowly before you know it, the bishop kind of take the place of the Senate. Um, the church goes from the margins to the center of society, then from the center of society to uh, top-down Christianity. I mean, a hundred years later, uh, Christianity is the official legal religion of the lands. I mean, that's a pretty powerful change. You go, you move forward to 1000 AD, by this point, you have this full-blown Christendom society, that is Christian supremacy over society in all forms, right? Uh, and during that time, what happened is that in the West, uh, 
Western civilization began to, because it became the dominant and majority of the church, it began to forget that they were Gentiles and grafted into this story. Instead, they began to think of themselves as, they conflated Christianity and Western civilization and thought of themselves as the owners of the tradition, right? A copyright on Jesus, a copyright on Christianity, a copyright on biblical interpretation. And anybody wants to come to Jesus, you come through us and you become like us, right? Um, so, so you have that. And then the church actually um, offers some um, church teachings, some papal bulls that actually give permission for Western Christianity to go into conquest, right? To, to plunder. Um, the first one was, what was it? Terra Nullius, right? Um, and that's like basically permission. I mean, initially that was initially written in response to Muslims, but Terra Nullius means empty lands. And, but the lands were empty. They just meant non-Christian lands were considered empty lands, right? And then a few centuries later, right before Constantine, another papal bull is written uh, with more explicit, um, in fact, it's right after Portugal begins to engage in slavery in North Africa, that another papal bull is written, given the church permission to enslave perpetual slavery, reduce them to subjugate them, plunder their lands, all that kind of stuff. And so the church literally theologizes and gives permission and it wasn't just the Catholic Church because Protestants soon follow after it. Everyone kind of took for granted those logics and participated in it. And literally in those moments, that's where the, the modern idea of white supremacy is literally birthed out of uh, the pra uh, uh, faulty, diseased understanding of Christianity. Christian supremacy morphs into white supremacy. I mean, you read some of the early literature when people use the language Christian, oftentimes they mean white. And white meant Christian at that historic moment. And so you see all kinds of mangling and really deep problems. And they see themselves in their conquering other people and dominating other people and plundering the lands and enslaving others. Um, they, they see themselves as winning. They see themselves as fulfilling God's mission in the world, right? Um, it's diseased, clearly. It's mangled, clearly. Um, and so, so much of, especially in the United States, the church was so deeply complicit um, like, I think there's this misunderstanding that, you know, oh, the church, you know, we get affected by racism because of the world's dragging us into this. No, 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 no. That's actually forgetting that we actually got, that the church actually created the conditions for these things. If anything, we drug the rest of the society with us into all of this. And so these are, that's why I say as much as it's helpful to engage in sociological stuff around racism, in some ways they missed the theological, the, the diseased theological implications of what was going on. Um, and so uh, from under slavery, um, the Bible was weaponized, theologies were done to sanction it under Jim Crow. Uh, the Bible was uh, weaponized, theologies were created to sanction it. Um, and it was only a minority of Christians for most of that time that were resisting. Um, and so even now in the present day, um, we can see it's very clear. In fact, Reverend C.T. Vivian, who recently passed away the same time when, um, uh, when John Lewis passed away, uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian, also another civil rights leader, passed away around the exact same time. I remember hearing him speak in person, and he said this about the civil rights movement. He said it was a clash of two Christianities. And I was just like, really, it was profound to hear him say it like that. 
it was a clash of two Christianities that, that, that were confronting one another with very wow. different understandings. One rooted clearly in the life and teachings of Jesus, right? Um, uh, love your enemies, do good, pursue justice, you know, um, I mean, King's teachings, you know, love is the only thing powerful enough to convert an enemy into a friend, right? He's, that's Jesus, right? Um, but then there was another form of Christianity that cherry-picked the Bible however it wanted to. I mean, you could, I, I tell my students, you can argue anything you want to out of the Bible if you really want to, right? If you extract random things out of yeah. context, align them together and universalize it, you can say anything you want to. Um, and so it it can be a uh, liberative and transformative and salvific uh, uh, reading, but it can also be dangerous and weaponized. And I think that, um, so that th- those are some of the ways that still today we see these things happening on um, the weaponizing of Christianity. And so I think now the work is, if we can acknowledge that that has happened, which is hard for folks to do, there's always going to be some denial around that. But if we're willing to, I mean, Thankfully, we have a gracious God, a loving God, who's always inviting us to repent and yeah. turn the other way. And so now's a moment to, to disentangle is to explicitly find a discipleship that's anti-racist, right? Like I say, in, in light of our history, there's no faithful way to be a follower of Jesus outside of being explicitly yeah. anti-racist. Um, I think, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm just going to say, and, and Jesus leads the way for us. He, he, he embodies yeah. where to go and how, how to live that out. Well, that ties into my next question, because Jesus was obviously a radical, and yeah. he was seen as dangerous, but in a good way, yeah. right? He wasn't, he wasn't out to weaponize the gospel, but because of that, specifically because of that, he was dangerous. Yeah. And the church was a threat. I don't, you mentioned the word complicit, but the church has been complicit. The church has been complicit in a part of the system that has subjugated, right? And and you have a book called Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. It just dropped in September, and you and I spoke about this before, but that book has to do with the radicalness in a good way that the yeah. church and Jesus were. How can the church recover this revolutionary grassroots Jesus-shaped witness in society? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to all start with discipleship, right? And actually taking Jesus seriously. I know it sounds silly at first, right? Like, what do you mean take Jesus? But I think so much of the church, we've not actually taken Jesus seriously. We, we, we praise the name of Jesus and people get emotional about Jesus. But in terms of actually following Jesus, um, we're not, many churches are not discipling people to actually take the Jesus that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John very seriously. It's almost like we've constructed our own Jesus in place. And it's, I think sometimes people see Jesus almost like he's a mascot for the status quo. I mean, you wonder like how um, the church has taken so many positions that it has over time. You can't do that by reading, let's say, Luke, where Jesus is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? Um, This Jesus can't be... uh, uh, contained and controlled and manipulated. He's so much more than I think what we um, recognize. And so the first task is taking Jesus seriously in our lives, actually living in such a way that we actually love our neighbors um, and our enemies. And anytime Jesus is talking about loving others, he's especially means, especially those who we're socialized to not love and to not care about and to respond apathetically towards, right? That that's precisely where it matters most. That's the the Good Samaritan story, right? Is about that kind of love. And it has to be 
uh, a kind of love that is not just sentimentality, but compassion and action together, right? Um, and compassion in the, in the New Testament is actually interesting because often when Jesus is described as uh, being moved, to, with it's talking about like being moved in his bowels. Like it's almost physical, you know what I mean? That's how much you care about the well-being of someone else or what's happening to them, that you're actually like physically affected and you respond through action, right? Now imagine if the church actually embodied that kind of love that Jesus taught, um, what kind of different... Uh, witness we would have in the public square. Um, so I think that that's a part is how do we, I mean, Jesus' teachings on the Samaritans and the vulnerable women and the poor and those who are neglected and forgotten and dismissed and stigmatized, right? Um, like that is the kind of teachings that we have to take seriously. How do we actually seek God's kingdom come here on earth, right? Um, embody that and bear witness to it so that our neighbors can see God's reign alive and real in our society. I think right now, our reputation is not that. It's the opposite. In fact, most people think, oh, church folk are hypocritical, right? And all these other things. Um, it, it, they're not being reminded that a new world is being birthed right now, um, often because of the way we've lived, the way that we've spoken, and the way that we've dismissed those who are most vulnerable in our midst. And so I think we have great opportunities um, again, to repent. I think that the church confession and repentance, I mean, the, the, the amazing thing about Christianity is it's not that we always have to be perfect, but that there actually are ways to deal with our sin, right? Uh, faithful ways to deal with our sin, um, lament, um, and then seeking to make things right by participating in what God is doing in the world. And so I think, um, yeah, if we want to, that's the starting point. I mean, you read folks like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany, it's, it's a Jesus-centered message that's, that's awakening him to his realities. You read Dr. King, it's a Jesus-centered message that is awakening him. And so we need a Jesus-shaped life in the church, and we need to re, rework our discipleship, slowly immersing ourselves in the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in a radical way, um, recognizing um, and being willing to... See, we, we can come to the Bible trying to reaffirm what we already believe, or we can allow the Bible to speak to us, um, open, vulnerable before the word of God, right? To speak to us, to say something, and to challenge us in our complicity in the way that we've conformed to the patterns of our world. Drew, you are, you're like a fire hydrant um, splashing all over us right now <laughs> because you've said so much about how our, you said uh, uh, Christian supremacy and how that has led us to be complicit in uh, racism, and then furthermore, leading us to to you know things like conquest and and so forth. And and one of the things you just recapping what you said, you said we need a discipleship that leads explicitly to anti racism. Yeah. And yet, most of our discipleship initiatives have been has focused on things like ecclesiology or soteriology, all these ologies, and yet we have not. We have not allowed the idea of justice into the into our discipleship. Yeah. And so my question is, number one, it makes it hard for this for us to even for me to even ask this next question because we haven't yet first addressed what you're talking about. But share with us what what would it take for the church to mobilize and organize around undertaking the idea of you know, like being anti-racist or leading into what it looks like to live a Jesus-shaped life? 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, what is interesting is, so right now, my argument is that most churches were captive to the political parties. Our imagination is captive to the political parties and partisanship. And it actually restricts us from actually participating in God's reign, certainly fully, if not at all. Right. Um, and, and, and so one of the ways that we can actually engage um, is not like right now, we, everything is top down. We start with political, the partisan fights as our starting point. And what ends up happening is, is that Christian ethics just get conformed and look nothing else but Republican talking part points and Democratic talking points. Um, and for me, it's not the, the radical thing about the gospel is it's not apolitical. It actually is very political, but it's not captive to partisanship, right? Um, and what can actually happen if we actually follow the way of Jesus? Jesus actually invites us not to start with some platforms and talking points that elites have given us. Um, and there's no question, I mean, this is going to offend some folks, but there's no question that the moral majority work that started out in the early 80s and stuff has done their work to really rally in so many Christians to just follow the talking points that were designed from elites in a back room rather than to think about what does it mean to follow Jesus on the ground in our communities? So I always tell people, let's start in your neighborhood. You need to be out there talking to your neighbors, understand the hurts and the pains that are going on. Jesus walked his villages, right? He engaged people where they were at um, and then ministered to them based on those needs. And I think that uh, if we're going to engage thinking about political action, Action that that is not captive to the powers. Um, that's why I think like community organizing things like that are actually really beautiful methods that really align with the faithfulness of who the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be listening and hearing the needs of those who are around us, um, responding to the hurts and the pains and the suffering and the injustices that are going on, and linking arms with those who are hurting. And it's not starting with the platforms, it's starting with people, right? Um, and I think that that, and then work from there, work to, to, to see God's reign manifest and to see actual people flourish in their world, in their communities, right where they're at, that we can partner and, and, and align for that kind of work. And so I'm a big advocate for that kind of work. And it, it is, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus, um, despite how domesticated and distorted his message is, he was very clear about his commitments to justice. In fact, he, he, he hammered in, I mean, think about, was it Matthew 23, 23, after he's given the woes to the leaders, religious leaders, and he says, you know, you tied mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, yeah. justice, mercy, and faithfulness, wow. right? Um, so they're so caught up in all these little, literally, it, he's teasing them about tithing uh, windowsill plants, right? Right. Um, and miss the big issues of what he says um, God's war, God's law had always been about justice and mercy and living faithfully in the world before God. And so I think that there's um, an invitation for us to take Jesus seriously again in our own neighborhoods. It has to be embodied. It has to be yeah. boots on the ground. It has to be lived out in our neighborhoods. It can't just be us in our four walls huddled down. We've got to be out in our, in our neighborhoods and communities, bear witness to what God is doing. It, it almost reminds me, Dr. Hart, um, when Jesus, um, when it says that, you know, he looked at the people and saw, like, saw that they were sheep without a shepherd. And either there are church leaders or pastors who are extremely silent, or 
they don't know where to start and assume that to start means that we have to do something on a macro level. Yeah. But what I hear you advocating for is no. It actually begins when we raise the level of our awareness as it pertains to a, a historical um, storyline of injustice that goes back really since the beginning of time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that we, I mean, when we don't actually know our own history, our own story, and there always will be another story that gets a revisionist story that will take its place, right? If you don't have your own. Um, and so we've got to tell, I always say the church ought to be the place where we can tell truthful stories. And that includes the messiness of our own failures. We've got to be the place uh, too often. I mean, think about, uh, so I'll, um, you know, the, the lost cause myths after the Civil War, right? Oh, it was just a Christian civilization and these sectless, godless people interfered. No, they were holding slaves, right? There is a, how do we tell truthful stories that also, and, and, and you know it's a truthful story when it's confessional, when we mm. can name our own sins, um, all the ugliness of it, where we don't try to deny it, we don't get defensive, we don't shut down, we don't leave the room. Um, but we bear ourselves open before God and say, look, we failed. We don't even always know where it is, but, but God help reveal these areas in our community. Um, and, and how do we yield to what God is doing, tend to the presence of Christ in our midst and join in with what God is trying to do right now? Yeah. Hmm. That's good. So, um, uh, Dr. Drew, you've got three key themes that you're committed to. How do those three things lead us to the positive outcome that God wants? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think how I phrase what I uh, radical discipleship. I'm, I'm assuming this is from the website, but uh, yes. radical discipleship yeah. um, is just this, this basically the idea that I've been talking about, which is this taking Jesus seriously and willing to break with the norms of our society if Jesus is going a particular way, right? I always think like, I think this idea that, you know, sometimes we want to be moderate and we think that, all right, so in a polarized society, which is true, there's a polarized society that we live in. So sometimes the answer seems to be like, oh, we should be moderate, right? But that's not, the, the real answer is we need to go wherever Jesus is going, right? Um, it may be moderate sometimes, but I think often Jesus is actually very radical on many things, right? Um, and that's wherever, wherever Jesus is going, I'm willing to go. Um, it, it's let me, dangerous. Let me, just, let me just read from your website real quick. I love yeah. the way you put this. Um, okay. Radical discipleship to Jesus refuses to distort and domesticate his life, teachings, death, and resurrection. Right. It accepts the call to deny oneself, follow him, and accept the consequences that come from such faithfulness. Because that's, that's what Jesus right calls here. us to, right? I mean, that's, that's his whole fire. teaching is take up your cross and follow me. Now, the problem is we can't hear that anymore because we've we've watered down Jesus's teaching so much that they fit to an American comfortable life. So take up your cross means, you know, oh, I didn't get the parking spot close to the store. I'm taking up my cross for Jesus or my electric bl blanket broke down in the winter. Oh no, that's my cross to bear, right? And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, we don't hear it in terms of what it meant in the first century, which was actually um, literally following Jesus and accepting the consequences of the faithfulness that we live in clashing with evil in the world, just like Jesus did, right? That we were, he was faithful. I mean, that's a Philippians too, right? Uh, obedience, even to the point of death. 
Um, that's what it means to take up your cross. And, and, and we see that there are, even in the U.S., there have been people that have done that, right? Um, I know some people think, oh, well, we don't live in a society where Christians are being targeted and persecuted. Maybe not in some ways, but I imagine that if we were much more faithful, that we probably actually would experience more persecution, maybe not always death, but there would be consequences for faithfulness, right? And we have to be willing to accept that. But so long as we choose comfort over Christ, um, we will never figure out what that might exactly mean. But through our death and sharing and suffering with Christ always also means sharing in his resurrection. Those two things um, are merged together. So yeah, we've got to take Jesus seriously. The next one, I don't know, remember my own order for how I phrase it, but um, I know I do talk about, oh, I can't even hear you, Peyton. Public witness, and I'll, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll oh, read, I'll read yeah, this ahead. one as well. Yeah, a, yeah, go ahead. A, Christian, a Christian public witness rejects the temptation to privatize our faith to only matters of the heart. We are called to embody and make visible God's reign on earth and to speak truth to power. And these are so powerful. Like, yeah. This is why we pulled them out because we're like, dang. Like, if you go to Dr. Hart's website, you'll find these three things that he's obviously unpacking in all of his ministry. But yes, please uh, speak a little bit more on that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's just, so what, what we've seen historically is that on this side of the enlightenment, what began to happen is that Christian faith began to retreat. Um, um, and so it got privatized, interiorized, and it just became only, not Jesus is Lord overall, but Jesus is Lord of my heart, right? Um, and, and then we just think about, you know, the bad feelings that we had that day and we feel guilty about, oh, uh, you know, I was greedy today and how bad that is. And I'm not saying like, yes, God should purify our hearts, our whole, all, all of us, but it's not just an internal thing. Our, it's actually a public faith that's supposed to be lived out before the watching worlds, right? Um, and so we have to have a faithful prophetic witness in the same way that Jesus did um, that bears witness to the fact that, that the kingdom of God has come, and it's, it's not the same kingdom of this world, right? Um, with different priorities and values and commitments and practices, and we live that out, and that includes care for those that are vulnerable, the least last and lost and little ones, right, in our society? Um, how do we live in such ways that actually um, embody the way of Jesus um, so that we can actually say with Paul, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right, out here as we live in the world. And so that's um, important for us to uh, figure out how to reclaim uh, not, not a small Jesus, right, a little puny small Jesus that only fits in our hearts, uh, but the, the cosmic Christ that is over all things and demands has implications for every area of our life. And I guess what this last one is solidarity with the oppressed. Is that how I phrase it? Yeah. Solidarity yeah. with the oppressed. Um, and basically, I mean, that's just, again, in some ways it's repeating um, aspects of the first one, which is radical discipleship, but it's emphasizing something specific just so that we don't lose sight of that, um, which is um, Jesus I mean, even the idea that Jesus um, was crucified, like sometimes we can miss that in the church. We forget that there were thousands of Jews who were crucified in the first, wow. in the first century. Thousands, yeah. right? Um, and God takes on human flesh and, and experiences and joins in with the crucified. I mean, that's what Paul is yeah. getting at. That's why he wants to say God has chosen the weak, the shame, the strong, is God has identified God's self um, with the most vulnerable in our world, how do we then live in solidarity with those who are hurting um, and so, not separate ourselves from them? So, Dr. Hart, when you say that, like, it, it's just reinforcing so much of what you already said. We're like, look, we can have a version 
of the gospel that, you know, obfuscates all of these kind of things. It should be obvious. If you were reading in that context in that day, yeah. when Isaiah says, thus he identified with the wicked in his death. Right. I'll tell you, as a white guy growing up in evangelical America, that went right over my head. Right. I didn't get that. Right. Like, but now to hear you say that, that verse comes to mind. I go, whoa. <laughs> like, I didn't until just now understand what that was saying. And often, I mean, you think about most of the biblical texts, most of the of scriptures were written by oppressed people. I mean, it's, and so when you hear it from that lens, sometimes things open. That's another way of thinking about solidarity with the oppressed. What does it mean to read the text along with those who are most vulnerable? What does it mean to read the text with the Samaritan and the Syrophoenician woman and, 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 and the tax collector, whoever it is that's been stigmatized in our society? What does it mean to read these texts in such ways that we can see them and hear them from a different vantage point. Um, that, that, that there's sometimes things that we might miss if we're not, I mean, that's why, what, what is powerful, I think about, thinking about um, enslaved Africans and their experience of crisis, so at the exact same time that there's a slave-holding religion of Christianity being expressed and articulated, slaves obey your masters, and people, you know, curse of ham is being argued and all kinds of stuff like that, and you have Christians who are, African Christians, they're stealing away to sneak because they can't even do it legally to experience and encounter God for themselves. And they encounter a God, not a slave-holding religion, but a God that is a liberating God, a God that's a co-sufferer, a God that's a friend in hard times. Like that's, it's in the spirituals. We see that and hear that quite a bit. And so I think that um, it's this invitation that there's actually something that we can gain when we actually, um, you know, and we can do it voluntarily uh, yield ourselves to others to hear and learn from those that often have been dismissed and silenced, uh, I think, in the church and not seen as having anything valuable to bring. That's why, I mean, even for me, like, I've got a PhD, but but I know that I've got to also hear uh, folks who are uneducated, who are poor, who are struggling, and hear them what is God saying to you as you're reading this text, right? Because I, I have things to learn and hear from. Yes, I can read all the commentaries and all that stuff, and it's helpful. But I also want to hear how my brothers and sisters in Allison Hill and Harrisburg around the way, how they're reading the text and experiencing God and what God is saying to them, because um, that grows my faith as well. So, um, you know, when you talk about solidarity, we, we exclusively um, – think it's just to, to, I don't know what the word is, like, oh, we, we, we acknowledge what's happening, or that's so sad that's happening to those black people. Right. But a practical way that I just heard you say that, that standing in solidarity means that I acknowledge that the way that I have been viewing the narrative of the scriptures has been exclusively from a place of Christian su- supremacy yeah. and, and, and borderline um, white privilege at times. But what I heard you say is that most of the scriptures were written by oppressed people. That's right. And I'd even say four. Yeah, as a tar- I mean, that's Howard Thurman, right? That's what he says. So he writes <laughs> yeah. Jesus and the Disinherited, and he starts off by saying, well, number one, let's forget about who Jesus was, that he was, the three things he said. He was a Jew, right, because he had been whitewashed and turned into a white person. He, he was poor. And he lived under Roman subjugation, right? right. Um, and his message is to that. That's his first audience. Um, his right. message is speaking. So when he says, love your enemies, he wasn't talking about the guy that gave you the funny look down the block. 
He was talking about political enemies who are oppressing them and exploiting them, right? Yeah. Um, Jesus' message was first and foremost to these oppressed people. And so what happens when when some, and not everyone does this, but oftentimes out of dominant culture, you can read these same texts and because it doesn't resonate in the same way, people then tend to reinterpret and spiritualize. Yeah. Jesus couldn't really mean what he said. So let's yeah. come up and do some fancy gymnastics to give other interpretations for what it meant, right? Um, right. And so now all of a sudden, Jesus doesn't actually care about, it's not good news to the poor. He didn't really mean that, right? right. Um, it's not really let the oppressed go free. He Clearly, he only meant that in spiritual terms. He couldn't really mean, but that's exactly what he does throughout his ministry, right? You actually right. see him care, tending to those who are most oppressed and stigmatized in his society. And I think that uh, folks who've been marginalized and who are vulnerable in their communities um, can see that sometimes even more clearly than those who have more advantages in their society. We're, we're about to, to come in for a landing, but before I um, toss it back to Peyton, Dr. Hart, um, number one, I'm encouraged um, by you and your prophetic voice. My last question is, who, ha- who, who is it in your life that has influenced this message of, of um, disciple-making, uh, radical disciple-making, um, public witness and solidarity top, top three people that has really influenced you yeah I mean that's tricky that's a tricky question um, <laughs> let, let me let me say this first that probably more than individual people has actually been traditions and streams right um, so I would say first and foremost um, kind of relearning and getting to know and studying the black prophetic wing of the black church, right? Um, has been really helpful to see it through history from slavery up to the present. Um, that's one of the streams that has been really valuable. <clears throat> Another stream is Anabaptism. Um, um, to think about this movement that was birthed within Europe, right? But was on the underside and was uh, persecuted. And there are ways in which they articulated taking Jesus seriously and discipleship in their tradition has been really powerful. Um, and, and also I would even go even further and say, I, like I try to read broadly, like some people like, uh, well, we only read conservative evangelicals or we only read mainland. I read broadly. I mean, I critique everyone, but I read broadly and I learn from everybody. Right. Um, and yeah. I think that, in fact, that's probably one of, like, I'm, I think I'm one of the few theologians that like gets invited to like everyone's spaces. Right. Because yeah. I, I, I value and learn from everyone as much as possible. Even not to say that I think everyone is equally has something. Cause I think there's some traditions that are really powerful and that we're missing sometimes. Um, but so let, let me think of a few folks um, in, on the black theological side. I think James Cone, even though I don't always agree with everything he says, but he's powerful. Even when he, just the questions that he asks force you to wrestle and grapple with some really important stuff. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer is fascinating and, and, and very rich um, to engage with and, and has so much to offer. Um, and maybe on the Anabaptist side, um, I will, uh, let, me, uh, let me see who I'll just give a name. Um, Donna Cra- Donald Crable um, has a book called The Upside Down Kingdom, which I think is probably a good intro into folks who want to engage on the Anabaptist side of things. Um, and, and you and maybe to self plug a little bit, but his 20th anniversary edition, because it first came out in like the 80s, um, that came out more recently, even uh, references me a little bit. So it's a little pat on the back for myself. Yeah, um, but yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. that's a really great intro into kind of Anabaptist radical discipleship kind of uh, and 
for folks. Yeah. So I have a rule on the Church Planner podcast that I run that if we mention our own books, we have to say cha-ching, but I'm going to mention <laughs> your book now. So uh, as, as we uh, look at this, um, one of the questions that came in, and we're out of time, Dr. Hart, because I know you got to go and teach a class which uh, I'm sure everyone on here is wishing they could sit under you and, and learn from you on this stuff. But uh, one of the questions was, where can white Christians start in this process of confession, repentance, and limit? And I'm going to answer that. I'm going to answer that simply by saying, um, who will be a witness is the latest book by Dr. Hart. He didn't come on here to sell it, but I'm going to throw him a cha-ching and tell okay. you that that book, cha-ching, is going to unpack uh, more of that question. I mean, that's that's why you wrote it, Dr. Hart. But we want to thank you for your yeah. time today. And, you know, just as a, a summary, uh, it really is evident to me that the church in its brightest in the last 100 years is during the civil rights movement, particularly the black church, as you mentioned. I wish that the white church had been more of a witness during that time. Um, but, you know, if, if you look 20, 30 years ago when the AIDS crisis was hitting America, just to think what the church would have been like if it had led the way right. on, you know, championing people suffering from AIDS, what a different conversation we would have. What a different opportunity for the gospel. You mentioned right. marginalized people. This is so broad. And the church keeps missing these opportunities to shine as the radicals. Imagine if the church visibly in the media had been at the forefront of the response to George Floyd. The people, right. whoa, we got the Christians upset again. Not right. about, you know, the latest thing that Disney put out, but right. something mm -hmm. radical that was embodying the heart of the kingdom of God. Like, it's so powerful to me what you're saying, and I'm sure all those listening. So on behalf of Exponential, Dr. Hart, uh, we want to thank you. And Myron Pierce, uh, the man that even Ralph Moore respects, hey, always a pleasure to serve with you, brother. So uh, we want to thank you guys. Now, if you want to take these conversations a little bit further, we encourage you to sign up for our roundtables. We have 100 different cities with 100 different roundtables, and we're going to go deeper because we believe on a local level, these conversations need to hit the streets, in the churches, in the communities that you live in. Like, it's no good for us to talk abstractly outside of your context. Your local leaders are planning a custom day to gather around roundtables to talk at a grassroots level with local leaders about how to affect change. That's 100 different cities in America. You can see some uh, familiar faces up there if you've been following this. And we want to encourage you to sign up today to attend one near you. And if you're a leader who says, you know, I think I could host one of those, please get in touch with us. Head over to multiplication.org, send us an email, let us know. But in the meantime, if you want to attend, sign up today. Want to thank you again for joining us today. This has been Peyton Jones, Myron Pierce, and Dr. Drew Hart. We want to thank you for joining us on this Candid Conversation. We'll see you next week. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer -peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.